Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, March the 20th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I am joined via Skype by healthcare guru Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, I've got a little bit of that cold that's going around. So, you know, if people think my voice sounds a little bit off, I apologize. Uh, but I'm, I'm really happy to be here today because we're we'll going to be talking about ways to build better portfolios. And I just think that that's a really, really exciting and, and useful topic. Yes. And that applies, you know, whether you're a brand new investor to the biotech space or if you're a more seasoned investor, today's episode is really about just diving into Q&A. We recently had an investing group, the uh, Talbot Investing Group, stopped by Full HQ recently, and they brought along some awesome questions. And so, it just made sense. Let's actually take these questions. Let's actually share these questions to all of our listeners out there. So, I'm excited to dive into these because I really do think they apply no matter whether you're seasoned or a newbie, um, but let's uh, let's talk. Let's dive right in. Let's kick things off with the first question. The question is: Considering a potential investment in a small company with no earnings but a promising pipeline of new drugs, for example, like a Regeneron, what does the Motley Fool actually look for? Well, that's my wheelhouse. I love that kind of stock. Um, I tend to invest in in companies that are up-and-comers, if you will. So, I, I boiled down to five things. I look for management. I look for whether or not the technology, the therapy that they're developing is disruptive. I look to see whether or not the company is in the later stages of development rather than early stages. I look to see how healthy the balance sheet is. And, you know, I like to know whether or not there's a well-heeled partner uh, for whatever it is they are developing. So, those, those are the five key things that I think are worth looking for. Yeah, and let's just briefly kind of dive into those, Todd, because I mean, I think that really captures the gamut of what you should be looking for, especially if it's a clinical stage company that is up and coming. The first of which, and I'm so glad that you said this first, because this is really a true tenet of Foolish Investing and something that all analysts here truly believe in, but it's really diving into management. We're going to get into it in more detail a little bit later on in the show, but what do you look for when it comes to management, Todd? I really like been there, done that leaders. You know, I, I want to know, have they successfully developed a drug in the past that's gone through clinical trials and, and won regulatory approval? I, I want to know whether or not those drugs were commercial successes. I want to know whether or not the exit for that company that they were at previously, was it an acquisition? You know, I, I think that those are the kind of things that I want to see with management. Proven leaders who have shown that they can take a drug from clinic to commercialization. And even more importantly, is getting past the the regulatory hump, making it to market. What's becoming even more important, though, Todd, is, is this drug potentially a commercial success? So, to see a management team that has experience not just getting through the regulatory hurdles, but also bringing a drug to market that actually makes money um, is certainly a plus in that category. Let's talk about the uh, the idea of a disruptive drug. How would you define that, and what do you look for there? I want to know whether or not the therapy is going to be a game changer. You know, can it reshape the treatment paradigm so that it can win market share away from established larger competitors? Um, one example of that that we talked about on the show not that long ago was Spark Therapeutics, and it's one and done uh, treatment for hemophilia A. Theoretically, if that drug, which 
addresses a multi-billion dollar indication. If that drug makes it across the finish line, it could transform treatment because currently patients with hemophilia A receive you know, two or three uh, transfusions or infusions rather of the missing clotting factor per week. So a disruptive company would be, or a disruptive therapy be, would be one that truly changes how doctors uh, treat patients. And I would even add to that, and really it's kind of inherent in being a disruptor, but you want to see at least one drug in that pipeline that does have the potential to become a blockbuster indication. Um, so that, that basically means you're looking at over a billion dollars in annual sales. That's one thing I like to look for is the potential there. And then more importantly, with um, many of these smaller companies, do they have multiple drugs in their pipeline as well? So I'd like to know that they have multiple shots on goal um, and that they're not placing all of their bets on just one drug in particular, too. Absolutely, 100% agree with it. I also think it's important to kind of keep keep track, you know, going to just moving on now to the third point, is it a late stage drug? I mean, I think there's a lot of excitement that comes out with with therapies and, you know, phase one data and everybody's pounding the table saying, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. But the reality is that, you know, about 10% of the drugs that go into clinical phase one trials actually make it to pharmacy shelves. And um, the failure rate is highest in phase two. Um, always, in my opinion, better to wait a little bit longer and make sure that you're, you've got positive efficacy in phase two trials and... Um, and that should at least maybe um, inform a little bit of a phase three. But even in phase three, and we're going to talk about this later on in the show, I know over half uh, uh, or roughly half of the drugs that are in phase three end up falling short. So, you know, just because it's a late stage drug doesn't mean you're going to guarantee success. But I, I prefer later stage drugs than earlier stage. Yeah, same here. And I like to know that they've got a relatively clean uh, safety profile as well. You want to know that the drug works. But if there's already a standard of care out there, will the drug work at least better or if not the same with the potential for less side effects overall is something that I'm looking at. Um, and with that, let's move on to the other part because financials also matter, even for clinical stage companies. Todd, what do you look for there? All right, so we have to remember that since it's a clinical stage company, there's no revenue coming in to handle the expenses. So you've got the money from your initial investors, you've got money you raised maybe from your IPO, and then maybe money that you've raised through secondary offerings of shares, et cetera. Um, but you do have plenty of expenses. So you don't have a lot of cash to play with, but you've got a lot of expenses because clinical trials, especially late stage clinical trials, can cost a lot of money. So you want to sort of take a look at the balance sheet and say, okay, how much cash is there today? What's their cash burn? So take a look at their operating expenses and see how their operating expenses, how much of, of their operating expenses uh, uh, they're burning through of that cash, right? And then, you know, take a look and say, okay, is management giving me any guidance to how long that cash runway can last them before they would have to go back out and dilute me as an investor by issuing more shares. And oftentimes you'll see management talk about that on their on their conference calls or in their press releases. They'll say, okay, we have enough cash on deck to be able to get us through that phase three, uh, and then maybe we'll have to raise more money if we're gonna try and commercialize it on our own. 
Exactly. And for new investors, you're not necessarily looking at cash in terms of can do they have enough cash to get them all the way through to approval? But to your point, Todd, you're looking to see do they have enough cash on hand until their next inflection point, whatever that may be, whether that's a new um, study readout that's planning to come. But you want to know they can at least get through that next inflection point. Another thing that I, I look at is, too, with these small companies in particular, it's a red flag for me when I see them take on massive amounts of debt. It's already risky because this is a smaller company, no approved products, but when you see them taking on a lot of debt, that just increases the risk exponentially. Um, Let's talk about the next, uh, I guess, checklist item, if you will, and that is partnerships. Todd, what do you look for there? Well, to try and avoid having to dilute shareholders, a lot of these small clinical stage companies will license the rights uh, to these drugs that they're developing to much larger companies. So I always want to find out whether or not there is a partner that is deep pocketed and maybe especially <laughs> has experience within the indication that is being targeted. And I, you know, just as an example, you've got Bluebird Bio, which is working on a. Uh, uh, gene therapy for multiple myeloma. That gene therapy is partnered up or licensed to Celgene, which happens to get most of its money marketing drugs for multiple myeloma. That would be, in my mind, a, a good example of, of a strong partnership. And speaking of Celgene, um, you've seen them do this multiple times, but I do like to see partners that make large upfront stakes. I think the larger the stake, the better, because then you know that this large biopharma partner actually believes in what this company is doing. They did this back in 2015 when they actually um, took a 10% equity stake in Juno Therapeutics and also uh, I think it was $150 million in upfront uh, cash for the company before they ended up acquiring them. I think it was in 2018. Um, so I do like to see good partnerships, strong leaders, and that they're making significant upfront investments into these companies as well. Um, Yeah, don't get too excited, right, Shannon, about a $10 million upfront payment that's really back-end loaded, right? Exactly. The back-end loaded um, payment structures kind of give me pause, Um, but it is something for you to be mindful of. Again, not every partnership uh, deal actually turns out, and many of them end up being terminated. But it certainly does help to see large partners um, coming in and helping to fund development and actually bring that expertise that you mentioned. Um, So, all in all, I mean, you've got a, a number of different points that you can look at as you're evaluating investments. These are the things that we like to look at here at The Full. But ultimately, it comes down to management. It comes down to competitive advantage, the sustainability of those competitive advantages, partnerships, and then, of course, the financials, too. So, Todd, let's dive into the second question, and that is, if a biotech company has had some success and is developing a new drug which has passed the FDA's second stage, or phase two trials as we know them, would The Motley Fool recommend investing then or wait for phase three? How risk-tolerant are you is really the the question. Right. I mean, you know, the Motley Fool does have recommendations of companies that have early stage programs. Right. So it's not like I think that you you can you shouldn't invest in early stage programs. But 
if you were going to stop me on the street and say, hey, Todd, you know, would you rather have phase two data in hand or phase three data in hand? Well, I would rather have phase three data in hand. And again, that kind of speaks to what we were talking about before with the success rate of clinical trials. There is a very, very high failure rate. And that failure rate occurs at each one of these different stages. I mean, and, and the failure rates are not insignificant. So, I mean, if you look at phase one, Phase one, you know, the probability of success. So phase one getting to phase two, the probability of success is pretty high. I mean, 63%, right? But that's because in phase one, you're really not, phase one isn't designed to prove out the efficacy of a therapy, right? It's, it's more of a dose ranging study, get some safety uh, information, right? Phase two to phase three, only 30% probability of advancing into phase three. So phase two, a lot of drugs end up failing. So now you're saying, okay, well, what if they've successfully made their way through phase two? In phase three, your probability of success is, quote unquote, 58%. So, you know, slightly better than a coin flip, you know, but still better than phase two. And there is always the risk that even if you put up good phase three numbers, that it will fail uh, to win regulator approval. But... Regardless, I mean, I like to have the odds in my favor. So I would prefer to have the phase three data if push came to shove. Yeah, same here. And you do see now um, with the FDA um, really trying to push through more of these innovative products, sometimes you'll see a combined phase two, phase three study underway, especially for areas with high unmet need. So you can look at that data as well, especially if they plan to use that data um, to actually register for approval. Um, But just like you said, phase two is riddled with failures. Matter of fact, the FDA even put together a document back in 2017, I believe, it was entitled 22 case studies where phase two and phase three trial data had divergent results. So it's not uncommon to see pretty good phase two data, but you have to remember phase two is only being only allowing the drug to be exposed to maybe several hundred patients um, in most trials. And really, you're getting early signs of efficacy, oftentimes on lab values or biomarkers. You're not necessarily looking at clinical outcomes. That comes in phase three. So while you get some early signs of efficacy in phase two, it's really phase three when it's expanded to a much wider patient population, often you know hundreds to thousands of patients with some of these larger trials, that you really see, okay, does this drug actually work and is it safe. My bet is always I'm going to wait until phase three, unless there's something really compelling or really disruptive or innovative. I might take my chances on phase two, but generally I will wait for phase three. You know, the other thing that's important to mention too, Shannon, is that you can look at this from an indicate on an indication by indication basis too, because they do have data out there that allows us to see, well, what are the success rates from phase two to phase three or phase three to approval, are they better for some indications than they are for other indications? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. So in some indications, you may feel more emboldened by the probability of success than you would with other indications. For example, hematology drugs tend to have a very high probability of success relative to all other drugs, where oncology drugs tend to have some of the worst probability of success. So maybe you're willing to go and take a little bit of risk early on, uh, earlier stage with you know, companies researching hematology, uh, but not really you know, wanting to take too much risk when it comes to cancer. Yeah, great point there, Todd. And two, 
I mean, we're the Motley Fool, so obviously we have this long-term buy-and-hold approach. So waiting to phase three and even you know waiting for actual approval is not a bad thing, especially if you plan on holding on to a stock for you know three to five years plus. It's okay to wait to see, does this drug actually work, um, and what's the commercial strategy? Oftentimes, you're not going to get that until a drug is uh, very close to approval or right after approval. It's certainly okay to wait on the sidelines until you get a clearer picture of that for sure. Uh, Todd, let's move on to the next question here, and that is, how does the Motley Fool evaluate management other than sales and earnings track record? Well, there's a few different things that I like. I like to evaluate them. As I said earlier, I like to evaluate. I like been there, done that leaders. So, I mean, I like people who are demonstrating to me that they've got the chops and the success in the past that they can leverage then to be successful again today. So, I think that, you know, one of the ways to evaluate management um, from a clinical stage perspective is to say, okay, have they been successful in the past? Uh, because maybe that will help you have some confidence they're going to be successful again. And then with commercial stage companies, how successful have they been in, in designing trials and translating those trials into regulatory approvals and commercial, commercial stage successes? And then how much are they willing to commit, if you will, in R&D spending to protect that moat? Or have they made missteps, right? And Shannon, you and I in the show, we've talked plenty about different missteps in the past that companies have made. And one jumps out to me is, you know, if you're evaluating management team, um, Bristol-Myers Squibb and what happened with Opdivo in 2016 when Bristol-Myers Squibb's management decided to go for a very, uh, to enroll a very aggressive um, population of, of people in a first-line um, lung cancer study. Basically, they were looking for patients who, who didn't express a lot of a particular biomarker uh, in their cancer that the drug was designed to, to, to target. They were hoping for the broadest label possible. Their competitor, uh, Merck's Keytruda, didn't do that uh, with their first-line study trial. And, you know, Keytruda succeeded, Bristol-Myers failed. So that's kind of a knock now. You look at it at Bristol-Myers Management and you say, okay, well, that was a, a bad decision on their part. So I'm evaluating them a little bit on the strategy of how they're designing their, their clinical trials to set them up to succeed best. I think that's something to keep in mind as well. And Bristol has certainly been under the gun more recently in terms of their management um, with this Celgene deal. We won't talk about that on today's show, but I'm sure we will get to that very soon. Um, another thing that I think is really important when it comes to biotech is management transparency. Um, because of the the changing nature, because there's still so much that we don't know about the human body and how these drugs will work, you want a management team that's going to be very upfront about its challenges. And even when it comes to trial design, you know, if they have to change an endpoint, you want to know that management is being upfront about it and why. What you don't want to see, and one of the tools I highly recommend that any biotech investor use, is to go to clinicaltrials.gov and you pull up the trial design and you compare the edits. You literally can compare what they have changed. And then all of a sudden you notice that they actually changed some of the endpoints that they're evaluating this drug on. Those are things you don't want to see. You want management to be upfront. Um, also, too, you want to make sure that their management doesn't use a lot of buzzwords that have very little meaning. So, like, successful FDA meeting is probably one of those that is my pet peeve, Todd. I don't know what that 
means. Oftentimes it just means you had a meeting, but I don't know if the FDA actually just told you to go ahead and just put that drug on the shelf because it's not going to work and you decided to proceed anyway. I want to know that I can trust management, trust what they're telling me, and also that they're not being um, coy about what's actually happening with their drug too. Yeah, it was successful, right, Shannon? I actually made it to the meeting. My, <laughs> I didn't pass out while I was talking to the FDA. You know, <laughs> I think that yeah, that's a that's a very very valid point. You don't want uh, a hype fact invest in a hype factory, if you will. If you if you feel like uh, you're investing in a, in a management team that's that's just more interested in press releases than than research, then you know you've got uh, uh, that might be a a company to avoid. Yeah, so we could probably do a whole show just on, you know, biotech red flags. But another thing I like to evaluate with management too is just the board of directors. Are they bringing relevant experience? Do they have expertise in the areas that the company is focused on? What I don't like to see is a board that is full of politicians that have no medical experience. And I shall not talk about the company that did that, but I'm sure many of our listeners will know. But I want to see a board of directors that brings that scientific and clinical expertise, and even the commercial expertise, too, um, is another important point for me. And let's go to our, our final question here, and that is, there's been much negative press about biotech companies dramatically increasing prices. Should we avoid companies which are aggressively raising prices? Todd, I love this question. It's an awesome question, and it's really relevant right now because you know, you just know that the 2020 presidential election, that's going to be heating up from here. And you know drug prices are going to be something that people are going to be pounding on the table. These politicians will be pounding on the table about because... It works, right? It resonates with people. People are frustrated about how much their medicines cost. And that could translate into headwinds for some of the stock prices of these companies. I think the era of unchecked price increases on mature drugs is over. And from here, I think that as you're modeling um, and thinking about you know, how much can we grow revenue at XYZ company if I'm, in a, if I'm a shareholder, I think you should be modeling 5 to 10% max per year from the existing drug, unless, of course, that gets approved for new indications. As a result, you know, Shannon, I think that, you know, investors need to be focused more on innovative companies, right? I don't think that they should be focusing as much on, you know, these companies maybe that have a quote-unquote track record of serial price increases that have driven a significant amount of their of their sales success. Instead, focus on, you know, innovative companies that are working on therapies that actually may save the healthcare system over time. Although they cost a lot up front, you know, if they're a one and done treatment, well, that keeps you out of the healthcare system and, and maybe saves uh, the system money over time. Maybe focus on those kind of things. So rare diseases, uh, late line treatments. So maybe like third or fourth line cancer treatments where there are a few other treatment options. You mentioned the uh, five to ten percent price price hike increases, and generally, many of the larger biopharma companies are really kind of targeting that range. It's kind of laughable to me because you do see some companies, you know, come out with a nine point nine percent increase. They just refuse to go above ten. Um, but to your point, innovation is, I think, really where you can unlock a lot of value as a shareholder. Um, for many of these companies, you want to know that they're developing drugs that have are serving a high unmet need area that 
you're actually contributing to the long-term quality of life for many of these patients. I think those are much safer bets overall. Granted, the price tags may be a lot higher, but you are starting to see a lot of these biopharma companies come out with you know value-based pricing contracts to make sure that they can gain some sort of reimbursement for these drugs. Those are the types of things that I at least like to see. Um, but I think all in all, I won't say avoid um, you know, the companies that do have these 5 to 10% price hikes. I will say, avoid really the worst offenders. So, if you've got a drug that you've taken off the shelf and you, you know, increase the price by 5,000% with very little innovation going into it, little, very little R&D going into it, and you're just repackaging it and selling it for much more, those I would say avoid. But generally speaking, just look for those companies that are truly innovating. Right. And you know what, Shannon, if that's a great point, because it made me think of this other point, which is that, you know, if you're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and you look at it and you say, OK, well, how much is a particular company, say it's a commercial stage company, how much are they plowing back into R&D? If it's 10 percent or less of sales, probably not going to have an innovative company that's going to have a lot of blockbusters in the wings. Right. You're going to have these companies are going to have to invest in their future to offset their patent risk. They just can't rely on price increases alone. Yes, great points and a great way to wrap up today's show. Thank you, listeners, so much for tuning in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening, and full on. Full on.